The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight we are going to start the cycle of lectures in this uh, series of satsangs which I'm holding, which according to many requests which we received from the pupils of the school and consecrated upon, there will be a series of lectures upon fundamental texts, some of the root texts of the yoga tradition, which uh, Agama itself is teaching. It is um, an initiative both for explaining the root texts, although we quote these root texts in our first level intensive lecture about Svadhyaya, that these are some real important texts, although we recommend them by the name and although we warn many people that they are subjected to the wall of silence and therefore it's karmically a little bit strange to get access to this knowledge. Nevertheless, very and although they are available in digital format and in the library, very few people actually stop to read the tradition. We do a yoga, and here in the first levels we start with Hatha Yoga. It's true, Hatha Yoga done in this energy-oriented way, in this tantric manner, which you know very well here in Agama. And it is very important to see that all these things are coming from a tradition. They are not something invented in the 20th century. They are all part of a very solid tradition. And actually, as soon as you look to the root texts, they show us really how yoga should be. These are the mother texts of yoga. They show us how the yogis wrote about yoga 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 600 years ago, or whenever some of these texts were written. It, it shows, it's a very nostalgic thing in a certain way, because you all know that yoga today is perverted, is distorted, is hijacked to a large extent, and you maybe often think that, well, it's still acceptable, it's still okay, like to which extent is this really, really taken away from the original tradition. Going to the original texts, first of all, you have this nostalgic thing, because when you read how the big yogis were thinking, what they were thinking, then you see how yoga should be how it was originally created, how it was originally designed and taught, and this will make you understand many, many things. Especially out of all the yogas in the West, especially Hatha Yoga became well known, the so-called physical yoga, the yoga in which you start with postures of the body, even this postural yoga has been distorted grossly because people have monkey minds and the monkey minds don't have patience to stay in the asanas. 
They want the yoga more like aerobics or like stretching, something in which you move and your mind can vacillate and oscillate and go into all sorts of thoughts. An indisciplined yoga, a yoga in which the mind is chaotic, which is, of course, not yoga anymore. And um, because of this, again and again, it is important to look into these roots of yoga. There are not so many of them, the karma, the wall of silence, or whatever other phenomena are, they did not preserve too many of these texts of yoga. And uh, it was indeed my wish, it was my thought, to teach you, to comment for you, to go with you through some of these texts, which are sometimes very esoteric, very twisted, very oblique in their meanings. And you will see how far it is on one hand from the superficialities of yoga and also how far it is from what is written in the text to the details of interpretation which always come to us through oral tradition. Like you are going to see that many of these texts, they speak obliquely about things. They don't say this technique activates Manipura Chakra. But they say this technique increases your inner fire and makes you radiant. And then if you know what that means, you know that it increases the fire element in your aura and this is possible only by a stronger arousing of Manipura Chakra. And therefore they speak indirectly to those who already know the stuff so that they can understand. And the outsiders are often confused. They are even more gross ways of creating confusion, as you are going to see. So, it is my project to go through some of these seminals, through some of these root texts of the yoga tradition, of this Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga, yoga which starts from the physical body, and then, of course, go deeper. And today, I shall start with... Uh, perhaps the most encyclopedic of them, the most systematic of them, a text which is relatively new in the history of yoga, which is called Geranda Samhita. Geranda Samhita is a text which is peculiar for a variety of reasons. That's why I'm going first to tell you a few introductory words about what is Geranda Samhita. Geranda Samhita and all these texts are not very long texts. It's a text of about 360 shlokas or strophes. That's about 20 pages of text. So it's not very long, long because it is written in a cryptical way. It is called Geranda Samhita. The word Samhita in Sanskrit means collection. It's like a collection of thoughts. In this case, it is translated as collection of verses because these are written in some sort of clumsy Sanskrit verses. They are not really rhyming perfectly like verses in Western poetry. They are more like white verse, like white versification, but they are still written in a particular style, in shlokas, in two-liners, and uh, this collection of shlokas or verses, versets of Geranda is the one which is called Geranda Samhita. 
As I said from the beginning, this is the most encyclopedic text of all the root texts of Hatha Yoga because it is the one which describes most techniques. For example, at the time when we devised the structure of our teacher training program here in Agama, we took into account, first of all, the Geranda Samhita because of all the root texts of yoga, the Geranda Samhita is the one which gives the greatest number of asanas and of yoga techniques. For example, the Shiva Samhita, which is another famous text coming about from the same century with the Geranda Samhita, it gives only four asanas. And those are all meditation asanas. It doesn't really give any typical Hatha Yoga asana. When we speak about the famous text Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is supposed to be a repertoire of Hatha Yoga, the officially known version of Hatha Yoga Pradipika, because there exists a weird one discovered in recent years, which is much more prolific than that, but the accepted canonic version of Hatha Yoga Pradipika delivers all in all 16 asanas. Here in the Agama program, if you go to the level 14, you learn approximately 55 to 60 different asanas. So way more than even in Hatha Yoga Pradipika. There is a tradition of Indian yoga, which is not published in any of the texts as such, which comes up to a series of 84 classical asanas. But out of the published texts, the one which gives most asanas is Geranda Samhita, which gives a list of the 32 classical asanas. I hope you see that all these people like to go in very beautiful numbers, and those numbers are usually multiples of four, and not only multiples of four, but actually numbers which are squares and others like this, like 4, 16, 32, 84. 84 is not necessarily a square, but it represents a multiplication with 14, seven times multiplied with, um, I'm sorry, um, 84 is um, again a multiple of 4, and then there is 108, which is again the same, and others and others, and of course the 64 tantras and others. This is an obsession in India and sometimes in Tibet that things have to be numerologically perfect. Like nobody would give a yoga text where you are given the 31 classical asanas. Because 31 for them is a shitty number. It means nothing. It's a boring number. It's a very irregular number. It has to be a beautiful number, which is a round number, like 32 is one of the multiples of 2 and 4, and thus it is a good number. Well, um, Geranda Samhita doesn't speak only about asanas, it speaks about many other things. This will come uh, forth as we look through it, but uh, it is unanimously considered the most encyclopedic of all the texts, so that's why it's good to start with it. As I said, here in Agama, when we devised the teacher training program and we wanted to decide how many asanas and yoga techniques we can teach in those 12 weeks of intense training for the trainees in the TTC. The first thing which we consulted is that we had to take all the relevant asanas from Geranda Samhita because they are the backbone of yoga. In Geranda Samhita there are about six or seven asanas which are totally contortionistic and acrobatic 
and only people endowed with an exceptional flexibility of the body would be able to perform those asanas and those asanas are not really the kind of asanas that you can teach in a yoga course uh, in a normal studio of yoga because most people will not even come close to it and if they would try it they would endure torturing pain trying to or even physical damage trying to do those so eliminating those any one of you who will study the our program of yoga as taught in the teacher training and others will see comparatively that all the asanas from Geranda Samhita, all the feasible asanas, all the realistic asanas from Geranda Samhita are being taught, are included in the program. Very often people said, oh, shouldn't we take this asana out of the program because it seems a little bit irrelevant. It may seem, but it is included in the Geranda Samhita. Geranda Samhita thinks that this is one of the fundamental basic core backbone asanas of yoga and that is why in respect of this tradition we stay aligned with it. It is also funny you will see that most of these techniques from Geranda Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Shiva Samhita and others, they are actually not done in the so-called modern yoga. When you go and do some of this acrobatic fitness oriented type of yoga, they do all sorts of movements and even experts and scholars in yoga, they shook their head and they asked themselves, how the heck did the modern yoga become like this? Like, how does it come that when you go in a studio of yoga and you do some of these new forms of yoga, you do this and you do this and you do this and none of them is in the traditional text. Where do they come from? And they found out with surprise that the founders of these so-called new trends in yoga, they got inspired by manuals of gymnastics of the British Army in India. So it's actually gymnastics for soldiers practiced by the British soldiers while occupying India in the previous uh, eras. And therefore, that's why I'm saying it's always useful to go back to the classics because when you go back to the classics, you see what yoga really was without Swedish massage, without British military gymnastics, without aerobics, without like where does yoga come from and how it really was. And uh, Geranda Samhita is a splendid example from this standpoint. Some of the characteristics of this text is that this text Geranda Samhita has been finalized according to the scholars. There is absolutely no historical way of going precise, but according to the type of Sanskrit language which is used and other such considerations, historical considerations, this text has appeared in Bengal in the late 17th century, in the late 18th century, actually, towards 1800, and uh, so it's a pretty recent text. It doesn't mean that the information was new, but it is written about 250 years ago, which is very significant because it means it is yoga pretty much updated. This is not yoga from the time of Patanjali, from the time of Buddha, from the time of the Bhagavad Gita. This is yoga practiced just a couple of centuries ago in the Indian tradition. This yoga text, mentions Shiva from the beginning as author of all yoga, as master of yoga, 
but Geranda himself, the speaker, the collection is of Geranda, so Geranda is the teacher in this text, seems to have been a Vaishnava teacher belonging to the Vaishnava orientation of religion in India. Generally, the Vaishnavas practice a yoga which is a little bit more calm. In India, Vaishnava yogas are yogas which are a little bit more household-oriented, and then the Shaiva yoga is usually the more wild type of yoga, which is made by the people who really want to go the full Monty. Uh, we don't know really um, who was Geranda. Scholars show very clearly that there is absolutely no historical mention of this Geranda. We don't know who he was, where he lived. The name of his disciple is mentioned, Chanda Kapali, but that doesn't give us any Influence. There are two verses in the text where Geranda says Vishnu is in the air, Vishnu is in the water, Vishnu is in the ether. So this is a sort of pointer to the fact that for him the name of God was Vishnu. He praised Vishnu as God. There is also one shloka where he says I am Brahman, I am the cosmic consciousness, which is a verse which is of Vedantic influence. So you can see in the teachings of Vedanta of, of Geranda, some Vedantic influence. It's a weak. It appears only in one place or two and not very much. And it uh, appears that there is a strong Vaishnava influence. Although there are authors who believe that since the name of his disciple is Chanda Kapali, it could be related to the Kapalika Shaiva lineages because when somebody is called Kapali, it means the bearer of the skull. Kapala is a skull, is a human skull. And this is a mark of some yogis from India, from the Kapalika lineage, which was a sort of radical Shaivistic lineage. These yogis, because they wanted to remember death all the time, and because they wanted to see death in front of them all the time, they were carrying permanently with them a human skull. And sometimes they even ate food from this human skull. They used it as a begging bowl and as an eating bowl because they wanted to constantly be reminded that you are going to be a skull sooner or later, one day, and therefore they were wanted to keep death as a reminder there. And uh, it appears that the disciple is called Chanda Kapali, so some people say, come on, these were Shaivas, these were Kapalikas. There is no demonstration about this, and the text does not bear any mark of that. Also, the Sanskrit under which this text is written is a very low category Sanskrit called Aisha, which means coming from Shiva, which means totally ungrammatical. It's like somebody who smokes marijuana and that starts babbling in trance. And when they talk, they don't talk grammatically. They talk in a bit of chaotic, like the prophetesses from ancient Greece in the temple of Delphi, in the temple of Apollon from Delphi, who were inhaling some gases, and then they were answering bizarre things, being in a trance produced by some substances. I'm not saying that this text is written under a substance, but many people in many of these revealed texts, it is considered that people were in meditation. Because of meditation, they were in a trance. They were spending many, 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 many hours in these conditions, and because of this, the grammatical form and the coherence of their texts was not always brilliant. That's why it's always difficult for translators to find out what really did they want to say
because they speak a little bit incoherently. There have been great yogis of India who have been fanatical about Sanskrit, like in the northern tantric tradition, which we call Kashmiri Shaivism, Abhinava Gupta and Kshemaraja and Vasugupta and Somananda and others like them, they were total Sanskrit fanatics. They did not accept the slightest mistake in the Sanskrit and everything was done to perfection. There were others like Bhartrihari and uh, Gaudapada and so many others, uh, Panini of course and others, who insisted on combining the Indian spirituality with a firm grammatical and syntactic uh, discipline. But in many places, especially in the tantric texts of India, uh, many people did not stick to that. They were simple people living in the countryside, having a very intense spiritual life. And because of this, the form and the grammar were only secondary to them. So this makes these texts difficult. One in, in the text of Gyaranda Samhita, because it is so late, one can recognize verses directly borrowed from previous Sanskrit texts, especially from Hatha Yoga Pradipika and from Goraksha Samhita. In India, this is not considered plagiarism. Once a text like Hatha Yoga Pradipika had been published in the 14th century by Svatmarama, it became a Shastra. And becoming a Shastra, it became public domain. Like everybody could quote from it, Exactly as if I say, but you know what they say, any tree shall be known by its fruits. Actually, I'm quoting from Jesus. It is Jesus who said that any tree shall be known by its fruits. But it doesn't mean that I, that I plagiarize Jesus, because this statement has become public domain. This statement is like a proverb of wisdom. It's like an aphorism, and it is universally understood and accepted. And that is why the same is with it. In India, you find this, that sometimes they take whole strophes and whole series of strophes from previous texts and they quote them directly in, this, in their text like something which was known previously and accepted and therefore which was considered to be totally true. Geranda, in Geranda Samhita, the yogi Geranda, when he is asked by his disciple Chanda Kapali, to describe the path of yoga, to teach him yoga, it describes a path in seven stages. Not in eight, like Patanjali does. It is called a Saptanga Yoga, not Ashtanga Yoga, but Saptanga. Sapta in Sanskrit means seven. And therefore, this is not a typical yoga like that of Patanjali. For your information, and it's something which we make clear very much when we teach Kashmiri Shaivism, India has some main trends of yoga, about four main directions of yoga. One of them, which most people know and which is a little bit outdated nowadays, it is the famous classical yoga. The classical yoga is the yoga which goes by the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And um, that yoga is written 2,000, 2,500 years ago from sources which are much older, and sometimes it reflects a state of mind and a condition of the human mind which is not existing today anymore. And because of this, some of the things from this classical yoga, if they are not updated to modern times, they become just like images from a museum. They become like something from a pages from history books because they are not practical anymore. 
So in India, on one hand, you have the classical yoga. Then you are having the yoga of the Kundalini Hatha Natha type of yoga, which came from Guru Matsyendra and from his disciple Goraksha. These two, Matsyendra and Goraksha, in Assam, in the eastern part of India, in the eastern corner of India, they started what today we have as Hatha Yoga and all the other physical things of yoga. They did not exist until the 5th or 6th century. If you consult texts of yoga written before the 5th century, there is almost no reference to any physical practice. The only physical things described in the Yoga Sutra or in Bhagavad Gita are just postures for meditation, cross-legged postures where you do meditation and mental processes. To work for your enlightenment with the body, with the support of the body, is a relatively new idea in Indian spirituality and it became active in the 5th, 6th century AD, like 15 centuries ago, through Matsyendra and Goraksha, and this has created the Hatha Yoga, the Kundalini Yoga, the Laya Yoga, all these energy-based forms of Tantric Yoga, which here in Agama are practiced abundantly. Besides these two, in India there exists also a Vedantic Yoga, because the Vedantic philosophy has become very strong, starting with the 12th century, because of the Muslim Rulership. India was ruled by Mughal dynasties, which were Islamic. And as you know, the Islamic religion, especially when it is enforced uh, in the fundamentalistic way, it kind of considers that all the other religions are heretic and pathetic and uh, despicable, and especially the religions which are not monotheistic, which are kind of semi-acceptable, but all the others, like Hinduism, Buddhism, they are really, really low grade for them. And because of this, it is a well-known fact that there has existed a severe Islamic persecution of Hinduism and yoga and Hindu mysticism from the 12th century to the 18th century. And in that time, the only yogis who could really go strong are the ones who were living naked in the forest. And these were not the tantrics. These were the Vedantins, the Bab, the Naga Babas and others like them who had to resort to the most ascetic lifestyles and they would run in the jungle where nobody could find them and there do their yoga, bag some meager amounts of food and continue their spiritual practice. This made that this ultra-ascetic ten trends in yoga became very strong. Like yoga until the 12th century was not like you many things, like you see many things in India. Today, there are yogis in India which vehiculate the funny idea that one should not eat garlic and onion, although the Ayurvedic medicine praises garlic and onion as very vital and very healing plants. Scholars, when they investigated where the heck does this come from, they found out that it's an ultra-ascetic element from Jainism. It's the Jain cookbooks. Jainism is a religion around the area of Bombay in India, and it is the Jainistic religion which is ultra-ascetic and ultra-brahmacharic, and for to avoid any form of sexual collateral stimulation, they were eliminating garlic and onion. But it was not what Shankaracharya did. It was not what the Hindus did. But after the 12th century, they started doing it because they started cultivating ultra-ascetic lifestyles like living in the forest. Because of this, 
the third main trend of yoga in India is the Vedantic yoga, the Vedanta yoga. Even Ramakrishna, the great guru, was educated a lot in Vedantic yoga and his ultimate spiritual success was obtained through Vedantic yoga practices with Totapuri. And finally, the fourth streak of yoga that we have in India is the Shaiva yoga, especially the northern version of it, Survive Strong, which we call here Kashmiri Shaivas, and it's a form of yoga which is extremely spiritual, extremely metaphysical, very advanced, and which uses also a different set of rules and techniques. So there are four directions of yoga, classical yoga, Hatha Kundalini yoga, Vedantic yoga, and Shaiva yoga, Trika, Kashmiri Shaivism type of yoga, and they are different with different lineages, and here in Geranda Samhita, we are actually talking about the Matsyendra, Goraksha, Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga types, which here in Agama are one of the pillars of Agama. One of the great pillars of Agama education is that we teach all these Hatha, Kundalini, Laya things. And uh, Geranda has grouped this path in seven steps, as you are going to see as we go through the satsang sessions during this spring and summer. Also, it is a notable thing that in Geranda Samhita, you will not find any reference to Yama and Niyama, like in the Yoga of Patanjali. It's not because Geranda did not believe in morality and ethics, but because he didn't want to write about it. For him, morality and ethics were something which you learned from religion, Morality and ethics were something which you learned from the household society. Everybody should be clear about your actions and their karmic consequences. If you want to do shitty karmic things which will have shitty karmic consequences, it's up to you. You destroy yourself, you shoot yourself in the foot, and it's your problem. So Geranda simply doesn't consider his time or interest to talk about this. Again, not because he is immoral or disrespectful of morality, but because his style is very practical. He considers that more like a philosophy. This is your philosophy of life. Let's talk about if we should be violent or non-violent. Well, this is a philosophical choice. That, and does your non-violence go as far as not killing animals and therefore being vegetarian? Or does it go all the way to not eating eggs and therefore being lacto-vegetarian? Or does it go towards not eating any animal products, even dairy, and so on, and therefore becoming vegan. This is philosophy, according to Geranda. You decide your life philosophy, like how non-violent you wish to be, because it's up to you to what you can cope with. Now, if you are eating, I don't know what products, you eat cheese, and the cheese is coming from some farms where the animals are not treated so nicely, then you contribute to a sort of partial torturing of some animals, who are immobilized or treated in bad ways just because people want to obtain as much milk from them as possible. And some people consider that immoral and unacceptable, and some people shrug their shoulders and they say, I can live with that. I'm not killing the animals. It's not nice, but if you don't do that, then I can't eat any animal proteins and so on. Like people always find justifications for some... Geranda doesn't go there. In Geranda Samhita, you will not find any poetic fancy. You will find no philosophy. It's just a very, a very clear and sharp manual of practice. 
he is interested just in outlining the technology of yoga. He is not discussing philosophy. There are a few verses where he says a few great philosophical things, but more for the purpose of inspiring you to meditation, not for the purpose of starting a, a philosophical debate. And that's why uh, you will not find even references to Yama and Niyama, again, not as an opposition to Yama and Niyama, but because he simply thinks you know about those things. It is also Geranda Samhita is the only of the root texts of Hatha Yoga that devotes an entire chapter, a big chapter, the first one, to purification practices. You know that there are Kriyas, and many people know, if you have done at least uh, six months of yoga, you definitely know one thing, that the Kriya practices, the practices, this purification, Shatkarma Kriyas, they are very efficient. They work very quickly. They save the day. Either we talk about Shankaprakshalana or cleaning the tongue or Vamana Dauti or Mula Shodana or Kapalarandra or so many others. These are techniques which are ultra down to earth and they work amazingly. Like they are the, some of the most direct techniques. They are gurus of yoga which have created whole branches of their teaching based on this. For example, one of my Indian teachers whom I met for a very short time, uh, Direnda Brahmachari, he had in his school and in his publishing a whole line focused mostly on purification and warming up practices, like nothing advanced, not even asanas. He called his system Yogic Sukshma Vyayama, and this Yogic Sukshma Vyayama, which consisted of most of the Kriyas and other warming practices, this is what he was teaching most of the time, especially to people that had jobs, family, because he said you need something which is short, intense, which works very well, which is focused on purification, on health and healing, you need something very, very... So, when he was invited to the house of the Indian Prime Minister in those days, Indira Gandhi, he taught Indira Gandhi and her son the Yogic Sukshma Vyayama, the six Kriyas and other such things. Like, you know, this is the most simple, straightforward, effective part of yoga. Funnily enough, there are not many texts, traditional texts of yoga which speak about those. And actually, Geranda Samhita is one of the basics. Geranda Samhita can be considered the main source of all the Shodanas, of all the Kriya Yoga, of all these physical and subtle cleanses that exist in yoga. They are all, Hatha Yoga Pradipika doesn't mention basically anything about purification exercises, which for Geranda, they come even before the asanas. For him, for him, the purifications are the first step and then you go to asanas. We don't teach it exactly in this way in Agama because that's not the way I learned it from my teachers. In normal practice, in the balanced practice as we do here in Agama, we teach you quite a few kriyas in the first level and a few more kriyas in the second level and the third level. But meanwhile, we also do asanas and we also step in with pranayama and with other and other practices. It's not just that you do only one of them until you reach to its perfection. So still remember this, that Garanda Samhita is spectacular through that. 
And uh, finally, we can say that some authors consider the practices in Garanda Samhita a bit tame compared to other texts. Like there are texts of yoga such as Shiva Samhita and others where the practices are described more roughly. For example, in Garanda Samhita, the, fourth, the third chapter, which is the chapter on mudras, is a bit disappointing because most people who know about Kundalini Yoga, they know that the mudras are instruments for activating Kundalini Shakti. But for example, in Garanda Samhita, for a mysterious reason, that's the system of Garanda, the mudras are presented rather like some evolved asanas. All those of you who are, are doing the Kundalini program in Agama, you know what an intense mudra, for example, the Viparita Karani mudra can be. When you read the Viparita Karani mudra in Garanda Samhita, you find out that it is presented as a sort of modified Sarvangasana, as a modified shoulder stand. And then you are shrugging your shoulders and say, what's the big deal about it? We don't really know if Garanda wanted to keep the secret and he knew the full practice of Viparita Karani and he considered it was not worth it to write it on paper because some people could practice it in a wrong way and get damaged. So if it was a voluntarily imposed secret or if his system kept the mudras more like a mild practice. This is one of the arguments brought by people who say, oh, Geranda was a Vaishnava teacher and he was not like the Shaiva teachers who go the full Monty, who go crazy, who push the Kundalini practices full on. And therefore, this is a bit of a more tame yoga practice. Also, another observation in this respect is that scholars have shown that in Geranda Samhita, so many of the tantric influences like the reference to chakras, to nadis and many of the sexual tantric references which appear in Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Shiva Samhita very clearly, here they have been toned down considerably. For example, Vajroli Mudra in Hatha Yoga Pradipika and in Shiva Samhita is a practice by which a man learns to suck his sperm back through his penis like through a straw. The Vajroli Mudra in Garanda Samhita is a practice, it's more like a posture, it's like an asana, which is actually the asana which is done in Vajroli Mudra, uh, the Hatha Yogic, the Kundalini Yogic Oli Mudras that we teach here in Agama Yoga. And therefore, um, there, are, there is also this trend in Garanda Samhita that uh, it is a little bit of a toned down text and when we'll reach to analyze other texts of this trend of yoga in India, you're going to see that they can go a bit more wild than Geranda Samhita. But Geranda Samhita has the advantage still of being the most complete, the most encyclopedic of all of them. I would say it's enough of presentation. You found out what it is. It's a text of 360 verses occupying about 20-30 pages of a booklet. It's a little booklet in which Geranda is answering to the question of his disciple Chanda Kapali, teaching him yoga. And he's teaching him in a very engineering way. It's one of the places where yoga is very systematically presented. As I'm going to go through this text, I will emphasize on some of the esoteric things, what is between the lines. I will explain the real esoteric and metaphysical things which are alluded to in the text. Um, 
at some times the text will become slightly monotonous because it is simply a description. We'll get to a point where we're going to go through the Geranda's presentation of the 32 asanas. Where I'm going to simply read what Geranda has to say about those asanas. That is a very, very interesting reading because what you have to look at is you have to look and see how the yogis thought, like what did, when they present a kriya, like Vatasara Dauti, or when they present an asana, like Paschimottanasana, what do they write about it? They write a few words. And it's interesting, out of all that two pages of theory, which you have here in Agama, when you have, when you look at Paschimottanasana and its two pages, Geranda has written four lines. Four lines about it. What did Geranda, how did Geranda boil down Paschimottanasana? Or Vatasara Dauti? Or what did sound interesting to him? What for Geranda seemed to be the essential message to be conveyed? What did he consider really important? And in which language they speak? This is very, very important because uh, in this way, you will, I think, going through this text will be a fascinating reading for all of you because it puts you into the mind of the yogis. You are going to get some telepathic attuning with yogis like Geranda and Svadmarama and the likes of them, and you are going, therefore, to see, to feel how they think, what their world was like, their spiritual world, as well as their daily life world. Now, the text of Geranda Samhita starts with a consecration. It's called actually salutation and it's the initial homage. The yogis of India never forget to do a proper introduction, a spiritual integration and the salutation done by Geranda in this text sounds like this. I bow down in reverence to the primordial Lord, and the name used in Sanskrit is Adi Ishvara. Adi means primordial, the first one, and Ishvara is one of the names of Shiva, and it's generally considered to be like a name of God. When you say Ishvara, you say God. So I bow down in reverence to the primordial Lord Adi Ishvara, who has revealed the science of Hatha Yoga, who has revealed the science of Hatha Yoga. Matsyendra said that he got it directly from the mouth of Shiva. And therefore, um, the, the Lord who revealed Hatha Yoga is none else than Shiva. So Adi Ishvara is an epithet, the primordial Lord Shiva, who has revealed the science of Hatha Yoga that stands out as the first rung on the ladder or of the ladder that leads to the supreme heights of Raja Yoga. Interestingly enough, in Geranda Samhita, Geranda puts it like this Hatha Yoga continues in the higher levels of what is presented here and then it will not be called Hatha Yoga anymore. It would be called Raja Yoga because it's concentration, meditation, contemplation. It's yoga of the mind only. So here you find one of the limitative things that Hatha Yoga would be only the first part, as long as we talk about mudras, asanas, kriyas, pranayama, that's Hatha Yoga, but when we talk about meditation and samadhi, 
that kind of Raja Yoga. In fact, the yogis have never really separated these things. They are just steps of one and the same process. And nobody says, I'm going to do the first five steps of this process, but I'm going to stop before I enter into step six, because I don't go there. So it's only a manner of speaking here in this salutation. And it starts with the chapter one, where Geranda will give the first lesson, which is about the Kriyas, and the text goes something like this. I have created my own translation of it, taking all the sources um, published about this. One day, Chanda Kapali, that's the name of the disciple, went to the hermitage of sage Geranda and saluted him with humbleness and devotion. So, as you are going to see, it starts very beautiful. It's under the form of a dialogue. Chanda Kapali asks and Geranda answers. Geranda speaks 99% of the time and the poor Chanda Kapali just launches a question and then he gets 360 shlokas of answers. And um, But still he's the pretext. And it's the typical Indian attitude. He went to the hut, to the cottage of Geranda, who was his teacher, obviously he was not a total stranger to Geranda, he was already a disciple, saluted him with humbleness and devotion, which is the correct attitude in the traditional Indian guru culture. And Chanda Kapali then said, O master of yoga, O best of the yogins, O lord, I wish now to learn the physical form of yoga. He calls it here Gatashta Yoga, not Hatha Yoga. I'm going to make you understand why this alternative name is given, which leads to the knowledge of reality, or translated by some authors, to the knowledge of truth, both reality and truth, with a capital R, or respectively with a capital T, meaning leading to full spiritual realization. So his question is, he salutes the guru very respectfully. He says, I consider you a great yogi. I wish now to learn this Gatashta Yoga, which leads to the knowledge of reality. That means which leads to spiritual realization. So he admits from the beginning that although it's called Gatashta Yoga and it refers to the body, the body is called Gata. You are going to see why. It's not the time now to reveal that because it doesn't fit. Is just a pointer. And he says this Gatashta Yoga, this yoga of Gata, of the body, actually ultimately leads to the knowledge of the supreme truth. So it's a method of spiritual realization. Which, again, is a very important point. That's what yoga was from the very beginning. You do yoga to know the truth. And as Jesus says, know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And then Geranda answers a lot. And he says, Since you asked well indeed, it's a very good start. He says, Since you asked well indeed, like if you would have asked me in a bad way, I would have given you the finger. But because you asked well, if you are a cynical, ugly-minded person, you can say, because you kissed my ass well and you made me feel good, I'm going to teach you yoga. Of course, if you are not cynical and sarcastic and diabolic in your mind and dirty, 
you are going to see that it's not about kissing the ass. The right attitude shows that a person is open, that a person is ready to learn, that a person has the right attitude, like my cup is empty, please fill me up. I am considering you a source of knowledge of yoga. Instruct me. I really want to learn. I really want to practice. And that's why Gyaranda simply says, well done. Like you've got the right attitude. You've come at the right time with the right attitude. I know you. You are ripe. You are prepared. Maybe you have been patient enough for six months or a year and you have been a good disciple. And now you deserve to hear what I'm going to tell you. Like you've passed your test, whatever test that was. And so he says, since you asked well, indeed, O mighty armed, he uses an expression which is called Mahabhuta, which can mean also great soul or great aspirant. So great uh, mightly armed is an epithet, which is a little bit strange. It is used in the Bhagavad Gita by Krishna himself. When Krishna speaks to Arjuna, his friend, who was also a warrior, he says, Oh, you mightly armed Arjuna. Oh, Arjuna, you who are like a bull among men. And he gives him some epithets which are very brutal and very countryside, like very down to earth. You know, like, what kind of man deserves an epithet? Who in this hall can I say, Oh, you Walter, who are like a bull among men. Like, who of you is like a bull among men? Have you ever seen a bull, a wild bull? You know how they behave. You know their energy, you know. Arjuna must have had a wild energy as a man. He was like a bull among men. A bit fright, frightening, you know, like terrible. And he was mighty armed because he was a warrior. He could handle the axe and the sword and the bow. And he was a killer, basically. He was a warrior. No, so it's funny that centuries later, the Indian tradition preserves it, and the guru praises his disciple. It's not only the disciple that said, oh, Lord of Yoga, great yogi, master of yoga, best of all yogis, but it is also the guru who says, you are the right disciple, you are the right person, oh, mighty armed uh, Chanda Kapali. It's interesting that the Indian gurus put so much praise on this virya, which is mentioned in your education about brahmacharya, that when you practice brahmacharya, you get virya. And virya means that you become manly, efficient, strong. They like this very much in India. There is a beautiful quote from Swami Shivananda, who says, are, where are the lion-hearted young men of India? That he says in 1940s and 50s. No, he says, I'm looking at the disciples which come to me. And remember, in those days, people were not vaccined. They were not stuffed with antibiotica. And they didn't have their head into an iPhone or into an iPad. And they didn't belong to the emo generation. Like people were much harder in India in 1950s. And yet, Swami Shivananda says, Where are the lion-hearted youth of India? He says, I'm getting only weaklings coming to my ashram. Timid souls who have no bold minds and more like, he says, where are the lions of yoga? You know, the people who will roar like a lion and proclaim 
fearlessly the spiritual truth. They liked this very much in India and in spirituality when somebody could be strong and at the same time humble and spiritual. This mixture, you are a spiritual seeker and at the same time you are not a weakling. You are not an effeminated, emasculated, new age type of man or something. These were mostly men and of course his addresses to women. Like what heart did women have when you read Vicky McKenzie, Buddhist modern English practitioner who did 12 years of retreats in a cave in India. Like what kind of soul must a woman have to sleep in a sandbox up in the snow things living 12 years in a cave or in a hut no it at the free range of vagabonds rapists wild animals everything you know and you stay there for 12 years and you do your spiritual practice what a lion-hearted woman that must be so this manliness this efficiency this strength it was there it was very valued in india in one of the tantric texts of India, when he says qualifications of a disciple, what makes a disciple really good? The first on that list of qualities is courage. Like what courage is for gladiators? You know, it's for Russell Crowe in the gladiator. You know, why does a yogi need to have courage? Is he going to do stunts and bungee jumping and skydiving? And like, why do you need courage? You need a great courage and a great manliness because you are playing your life on one throw of dice. You are risking everything and you risk to lose everything. And that's why there needs to be a great soul, a Mahatma, a Mahabhuta, a person with great aspiration who is ready to play the high stakes of this game. This is like a game on the highest stakes possible because you risk to lose your life and you risk to lose your soul, and you risk to go into unhappiness. And that's why not everybody is cut to go all the way into this game of spirituality, because it's not really a game. It's something very, very powerful. And that's why even here you can see that this guru emphasizes, he highlights something very strange. He says, since you asked, well indeed, O mighty armed one, I shall instruct you on what you ask. And then he twists it very beautifully. That's the Indian soul. So beautifully because now it seems that everything is kind of going on Manipura. The disciple says, Oh, you best of your yogis, I bow down in the sand in front of you, teach me yoga. And the teacher says, Yeah, your arms are really mighty, I'm going to teach you. It's like two hooligans being part of the same gang and they respect each other because they are both of them really good. And then he says a very beautiful thing. He says, listen attentively, O child. He calls him child. Ultimately, you are my disciple, you are my spiritual child. He treats him with the love and candor with, whom you, with which you would treat a child. He gives him this softness, this Indian softness, which you would give to the child. And before he starts going into the technology, he's telling him a few introductory things about yoga, because he's about to describe the path of yoga. And these are only the few of the shlokas, the few of the verses in this text, where you are going to hear some philosophy. It's a little bit philosophical, although he intends to be as practical as possible. He gives, in the verse number four, he gives a very beautiful 
straightforward, powerful statement. He says, there is no chain. For the word chain, he uses the word pasha, from where there results pashu, like being an animal, a chained animal. Pasha is a loop. When you look at the female deities, images, you see that some of the female tantric deities, in one of their hands, they hold a loop. That loop is exactly like the dog catchers used to catch a stray dog by a loop. You know, like you catch calves by the cowboys. Use That's a loop. And that loop is simply a chain. It's something which keeps you imprisoned. Because if you are an animal, you deserve to be in the loop. Mother Nature has got you in a loop. Your freedom is limited. Animals don't really have a freedom. You can say, but animals in the jungle are free. They are apparently free. But they can do only what their animal DNA dictates to them to do. Animals cannot live a life outside of their animality. You don't find animals suddenly practicing brahmacharya and becoming celibate or ascetic. They can't do that because it's not in their nature to reverse the law. Human beings can do that and have done it a lot. And therefore, he says there is no chain like that of illusion. He gives four comparisons which are to be remembered. Geranda says there is no chain like that of illusion. Maya. Like nothing enchains you as much as illusion. That He warns his disciple. He said, before I teach you yoga, know this, there is no chain like the chain of illusion. Any other chain is a joke compared to the chain of Maya. Many of you can get confused by the fact that we being in a tantric school, Maya is even worshipped under the form of Bhuvaneshwari, one of the ten goddesses represented beautifully there. And Bhuvaneshwari represents Maya. And we don't fear Bhuvaneshwari. We worship Bhuvaneshwari. But that doesn't mean that if the tantrics are making friends with this force of nature, it does not still exist. It doesn't mean that in a certain way you should not fear it. The first of the cosmic powers is time. And time is great. But you should fear it. If you don't fear time a little bit, you are a fool. Because the clock is ticking, the time is passing, and its effects are irreversible. Nothing goes back in time in normal conditions. Therefore, exactly as as friendly as you are with time, time is something inevitable, and you cannot... Stay away from it. Exactly in the same way, Maya, the illusion, exists. And it's true that some people are spiritual enough to deal with it, to take it frontally. But Geranda says, don't underestimate it. There is no chain like that of illusion. The chain of illusion is the ultimate chain and you have to free yourself from it. There is no chain like that of illusion. There is no power... He uses the word Bala, like in Jiva Balasana, Bala, the intrinsical power. There is the power, the magnetic power in the body, the vitality. He says there is no power like that of the practice of yoga. Like the ultimate power is what comes from the practice of yoga. He, he gives the extremes. He says there is no chain like the chain of Maya. There is no power like the power which results from the practice of yoga. There is no better friend than genuine knowledge, jnana. Like if you know what is right, 
if you are not deluded in your knowledge, because there is false knowledge, some people think that they know. And a hundred years later, they are going to find sadly, find out sadly, they actually didn't know. But they thought they knew because of their arrogance. They were deluded. So there is no better friend. Your best friend is knowledge. You have to be knowledgeable. You have to know what is what. That is why spiritual education is a must. It is your best friend. And no greater enemy than egoism. Ahamkara. These are the four milestones which he puts for his disciple. There is no greater chain than the chain of Maya. There is no greater power than the power which comes from the power of yoga. From the practice of yoga. There is no better friend than the true knowledge. The accurate knowledge. And there is no greater enemy than the egoism. One of the teachers of one of my teachers, whom I met personally when he was 90-something years old, he was Suren Goyal, his name was, he had even made it into an aphorism. He said, yoga in, ego out. Ego in, yoga out. Like, it is known in the world of yoga, you have to deal with the ego much of the spiritual life is about going through the veil of Maya, breaking the chain of Maya, through doing yoga practice to acquire the inner strength. It is acquiring knowledge, accurate knowledge, not false knowledge. So some people say, we are clones coming from the Pleiades, we are robots of a alien civilization. Is that accurate knowledge? Most probably not. But there are whole people who swear their lives by this, that we are robots from the Pleiades. When they will die, they will find out that they believed in bullshit and that there exists false knowledge. That you think you something is right, but you didn't really try to verify. It's a knowledge which is not verified by anything and which is actually, according to most people, quite aberrant. So, Break the chain of Maya. Do the practice of yoga to get inner power. Get accurate knowledge. The knowledge which comes from the Shastras and from the enlightened beings. Like Buddha knows what he's talking about. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Rumi knows what he's talking about. Like Take the knowledge from where the knowledge is shining. And last but not least, the, your greatest enemy is Ahamkara. I could dwell on this shloka for a whole evening because these are the landmarks given by a great yogi of India. Now, which is your best friend? Which is your greatest enemy? Which is the greatest power? Which is the greatest obstacle? And he continues encouragingly. This is a, I like this because it's a preaching for yoga. Geranda really believes in his yoga and he praises yoga. Before teaching it in actual fact, he communicates his enthusiasm about yoga. He says, as by first learning the alphabet, one can, through practice, master all the shastras, like the sacred, the tradition, the sacred test. So it starts with the alphabet. First you have to learn the alphabet and then you learn the words and then you understand them and then you can even understand 
complicated texts of philosophy and metaphysics is by first learning, first learning the alphabet. One can through practice master all the shastras. So by thoroughly, master, by thoroughly mastering this yoga, he talks about the yoga which he knows, which he is going to teach here. So by thoroughly mastering this yoga, one can eventually attain to knowledge of reality or to knowledge of the truth. The Sanskrit word which he uses is tattva jnana. Jnana means knowledge and tattva, tat in Sanskrit means that. And that tattva means thatness. And it's a sort of a Sanskrit word which means reality. It's the objective reality. And Gyaranda therefore says, as you learn the alphabet and that can help you to understand the Shastras, learn yoga and it will help you to see the ultimate truth. It will help you to reach the understanding of reality. Yoga is like an alphabet and you practice it and then it takes you wherever you want it to take you. It takes you to this higher knowledge. And he continues for another three shlokas with these general remarks. It gives a sort of a brief philosophical outline of what's happening. He says a wild thing in shloka number six of the first chapter. He says the bodies of all living beings are the result of previous good and bad deeds. Your body is the result of your karma. Either you are pleased with your body or not, that's a totally different story. But what your body is, he says, it's the result of your previous good and bad deeds. Which is, of course, fundamental truth. Buddha would have said just the same. So, Gyaranda is very straightforward with this. And then he says, the bodies, however they are, good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant, give rise to new deeds. Like, as long as you are in a body, you cannot stop yourself from doing more things. And these new deeds, he calls them karma. So your body is the result of having had a karma. And since you have a body, now you are doing new karma. And in this way, the cycle continues like a Persian water wheel. As a Sanskrit word, which describes these water wheels with buckets, which are spun by oxen. You tie an animal, and the animal spins it, and this wheel has buckets which go into a water canal or a lake. And it's a huge wheel with buckets. So it's, he compares it with a water wheel. He says, in this way, you, you have a body because you did actions. And because you have a body, you do further actions, which of course will bring you another body in the future. And in this way, you will continue and continue and continue forever if you don't do something to stop that. And he says... The body give rise to new deeds. And in this way, the cycle continues like a Persian water wheel. And in shloka number seven, he continues the idea, which is the idea of reincarnation without end, which Buddha himself has seen. As the water wheel, drawn by bullocks, goes round and round, now full, now empty, because those buckets are full when they go up, and then when they pour their water, they come down empty. So, as the water wheel drawn by bullocks goes round and round, now full, now empty, so the soul, which he calls by the name Jiva, like from Jivatman, but he uses a short of it, so the soul, Jiva, circles through life and death 
now full, now empty, now alive, now dead, moved by its actions, moved by its karma. Simple philosophy. He simply says, the reason of everything is karma, and that this karma never stops. Nobody does anything to really stop it, and the karma produces a new body, and the body produces new karma. And it just goes on forever. And then he gives a very beautiful metaphor, which I have uh, used a lot. It has inspired me a lot in the practice, because he goes a little bit more concrete. He doesn't really... He takes the idea of a body, that there is a body produced by the karma. But then he says, as an unbaked earthen pot immersed into water, the body, which is called ghata, quickly decays in this world. That's a splendid comparison. That's why it's called ghatashta yoga. Ghata, he compares your body with a pot like on a potter's wheel. A pot made of earth, an earthen pot, like they had in the old days, a ceramic pot. But he says this pot is unbaked. And if it's unbaked, you have all seen a pot prepared by a potter. And then what do they do? They put it in an oven. But if you take the pot before it was put in the oven and put water in it or put it in the water, what will happen? the earth will dissolve because of the water and the pot will crumble and fall apart soon. Geranda uses a brilliant comparison here, which is taken even further than this, because he says, first of all, your body in this world decays. And he even uses the word quickly. Because he says, everybody who is 70 years old would wish to be young again. And everybody says, oh, this life has gone too quickly. People are nostalgic about the way that they lost their life and they wasted part of it and this and that. And everybody feels it has gone too quickly. So, Geranda is aware of this and he says, as an unbaken earthen pot immersed into water, the body, gata, like a pot, quickly decays in this world. The same is valid. There is, there is a commentary to it. The same is valid if you put water in. He compares this with the descent of the spirit at some point. And he says, if you take a pot and put water in it too early, then the pot will be damaged by the water. And the water will become the destruction of your pot. And that's why what is necessary is that first the pot should be baked. It should be first baked to resist And that's why we say the human being is the temple of God. But God cannot enter the temple like water in an unbaked pot. If God enters that temple, that temple breaks apart. This is one of the secrets of spirituality because many people ask for grace. But there were people who got the grace and they had terrible things to endure. Even smaller breaks. I'm not talking about the great gift of the Holy Spirit entering you or something. Even smaller gifts. Edgar Cayce suddenly became clairvoyant with access to Akasha. And then he refused to practice it. And he became blind. Until he put up with it. 
Paul, the apostle of Christ, saw Jesus on the road of Damascus and then he became blind for a period of time until he met with Peter who blessed him and then he regained his sight. Many people entering into spiritual things, they have gone paralyzed, strained. Emmanuel Swedenborg fell on his butt, fell on his tailbone and he broke his tailbone but he became clairvoyant and started having externalization like going into the astral body and projecting into the astral body. I have known many years ago a woman who was in a car accident as a child. Her Both parents were killed in that accident. She got her skull fractured by because her head was hit like this and she did not die and she started seeing auras and she was blind physically. She became blind but she could see auras and she became a clairvoyant woman with great healing possibilities from, like, that's a sort of a Ramdas, one of the modern, from the hippie generation guru, Ramdas, Richard Alper, has called it in one of his uh, DVDs after he himself got hit by a stroke and became half paralyzed. He called it fierce grace. Like, grace can be so fierce sometimes. It can be so cruel sometimes because it destroys many of our human limitations. That's why I can give many examples, but the fact is that when the spiritual influence comes too suddenly, too early in the human being, then it destroys many things. It is illustrated so beautifully in one of the LSD songs of Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd composed on LSD several songs, but one of them is, of course, Wish You Were Here shine on you crazy diamond and one of the verses of that song is so illustrative because he said you you reached for the some i cannot say exactly maybe some of you know the verse exactly it says you reach for the truth too soon now you cry for the moon like the spiritual truth is great but if it comes too soon it can make you very unhappy emerson uh, not not Emerson, the other guy, the the one with I sing the body electric. The poet, the American poet, Whitman. That's it. Walt Whitman reached the state of samadhi, an actual state of samadhi, and all his family and sometimes he himself afterwards thought that he was mentally disturbed. Instead of yelling with joy and saying, I have reached the state of Samadhi like Arjuna and I have seen the fabric of the universe, he started blaming himself and said, come on man, you are really disturbed. Because he didn't have a guru. It came not through 12 years of yoga training. He was not prepared. That's what's happening when you pour water into an earthen pot which is not baked. The yogis say a person to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit has to be prepared. That's why it doesn't come in the beginning. It comes after years and years of prayer, of meditation, of whatever your lineage is, because you need to prepare something. People, paradoxically and absurdly, think that they are prepared right now. Why doesn't it come right now? Well, I'm ready. What can happen? A lot of bad things can happen even from the divine things. Kali came to one guy practicing the 
Shava Puja, the Shava Sadhana in the jungle, and he died of a heart attack because of fear. And another one found the corpse and did the Shava Sadhana and reached enlightenment. And it was like in the saying of Jesus, it is not for those who have prepared it, it for those who, for whom God decides. Like, understand, here Geranda says a very formidable truth that the human being must be prepared both for the world and for the spiritual reality. It's a very naive thing to think that you are prepared as you are. Because the continuation of this shloka is brilliant. It says that is why one must bake it hard or temper it, like you temper a metal. One must bake it hard in the fire of this yoga. He compares yoga to a fire which bakes you and hardens you. He doesn't mean literally, because actually you become more flexible physically. But something inside you resists. So it's, he says that is why one must bake it hard in the fire of this yoga, to strengthen and purify it. A body which is not strengthened or purified, says Geranda, it will not survive. Ramakrishna had so many states of samadhi, that he got a cancer in his throat. He pushed himself and pushed himself and pushed himself and he got a cancer in the throat. Like even the body of Ramakrishna did not. Ramakrishna didn't do too much Hatha Yoga. At some point he realized that Hatha Yoga would be interesting and important and he started doing Hatha Yoga and he started doing it like Ramakrishna would do it, which means madly, insanely. And then he suddenly got blood gushing out of his mouth and of his nose. And the yogi, a local yogi who knew, he, he was a young boy, he said, yeah, yeah, you tried to do yoga too hard and some physical part of Kundalini moved up with some of the body humors, with some of the fluids of the body and if it wouldn't have exploded in the nose, in the vault, in the palate, in the back of your palate, in the throat, it actually, all this pressure would have gone to the brain and something would have exploded in your brain and you'd have gone dead or paralyzed. So it's like you are lucky that it just this blood ran out of your mouth and nose and like take it easy. Like Ramakrishna didn't have a Hatha Yoga guru and he was just doing crazy things whatever he thought that he should do. It's a fire of yoga. By doing yoga something in your body is like tempered by fire. Something in your body, in your structure is like baked hard. And when you take an earth pot and you bake it well, then you can put water in it for a hundred years. There are baked pots from ancient Greece and ancient Babylon which still exist and they are 5,000 years old and you can still put water in them and drink water from them. Once it's baked, it can resist like forever. This is very a very important thing. Remember, it is valuable, it is valid even when it concerns spiritual influence. The spiritual influence, I was talking the other night with the people from the TTC and they were asking me some very direct questions. The spiritual influence is something which needs to be integrated. If suddenly I'm a normal person, I'm just a dude on the street, I'm a Tom, Dick and Harry, I'm doing my things, I live a street life, I live a bourgeois common life under Maya and everything. And suddenly I get hit by the lightning of God, so to speak. And suddenly I get enlightened. I see everything. I, I know everything. Suddenly I'm there in that zone. And then when that state is over, 
because I will relapse from it, then what's going to happen? I'm going crazy because I have been a dude for 30 years and suddenly for five hours I have been a god. This has happened also to some people who took drugs and they had some real high states of consciousness and then they could never reach there. They tried always to just take drugs and you know, look at Timothy Leary. Uh, you know, he said we should put LSD in the drinking water of all the cities of America so that everybody should drink LSD simultaneously. Everybody should go onto an LSD major trip and the whole America will get enlightened in 24 hours. Everybody will be an enlightened Buddha in America in 24 hours. He didn't manage. It didn't work. And you, at least if he would have become a Shivananda or a Ramana Maharishi. But when you look at the way Timothy Leary grew old, he grew old as an ugly, angry, frustrated man. His psychological profile was ugly. He was an unpleasant person. Egocentric, irate, and with a lot of negative traits. The man who wanted to enlighten America, the LSD Messiah of America, was a man who was a flop as a human being. Ramakrishna was a hundred times more charming and more compassionate and more loving and more wise and many, many more, more, more that Ramakrishna or Shivananda or if you want a woman, Mananda Mai or Saint Teresa of Avila had as compared to Timothy Leary. Why? Because Timothy Leary got, it, got something, whatever he thought he got, with LSD. And he did not manage to integrate it. It was like putting water in an unbaked pot. It destroyed him. It didn't build him. Many, many people of the hippie generation destroyed themselves by using drugs. That's why we constantly tell to people here, don't play with drugs. You don't know what you are playing with. You want to have quick, flashy experiences. But those quick, flashy experiences, they are like seeds that have to fall on a fertile soil. If the soil is not prepared for the seed, the seed will not sprout right and it will not give the right result. If you are not baked in the fire of yoga, then not the right result will be obtained. And that's why I'm uh, saying even the spiritual truth has to come at its right time. That's why people say, God, Oh God, oh when, when will I see you? You will see God when you are prepared. Remember what Saint Mary of Egypt said. She said, blessed be God who loves people and wishes for their salvation. If a great female saint saw with her own eyes, she felt, she experienced for years in the desert that God loves you actively, not in an indifferent way, loves you and wishes for your salvation. The divine consciousness is tapping its fingers right now and says, when, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's wishes for your salvation. It's actively involved in this process. Why doesn't it do it? Then why do you have to say when, oh when? Simply because your, your jar is not baked and pouring the water in you now it would bring more harm than good. Because the spiritual reality, the Holy Spirit, is like a fire. And it can have a very destructive effect. People think that, oh, let me just have another peak experience of, I want to see God. 
So you know that the Jewish prophets and Indian and Kashmirians have said the same. The Jewish prophets have said it in a very funny way. They said, there is no man that can see God face to face and remain alive. Like if you get to that level of intimacy, you die. Your physical body can't hold you anymore. You are not fit for living in a physical body anymore. The limitations of the physical body will fall apart instantaneously. So enlightenment at that level is equivalent with instant death. That's why it's not a joke to deal with the spiritual things. The spiritual things are a fire that burns. They can, it can bring you instant death. It is mentioned in Kashmiri Shaivas that there are forms of enlightenment where you leave your body at the same moment. Like you never come back from that state of enlightenment. That's why this comparison of Geranda is brilliant, is genius. Because he says, you all want to have water in your pot, but please prepare the pot. There is a beautiful documentary made by Georg Feuerstein and others, which is called exactly that, the fire of yoga. That's why it's called the fire of yoga. Because yoga has a purpose. It's like tempering a piece of metal until you turn it into steel. It's like it's doing something to you, to your chakras, to your nadis, to your emotions, to your mind, to your yin-yang balance, to your awareness. And finally, when you are fit, when you are fit indeed from a spiritual standpoint, then the spiritual influence comes to you. Believe me, I have seen it not only on myself because I can consider myself a very subjective or peculiar case, but I have seen it by studying the lives of great yogis and great spiritualists. When they got spiritual influence onto them, they sometimes behaved in very bizarre ways. Both Francis of Assisi and Teresa of Avila and Ramakrishna and Aurobindo and Shivananda and many and Mananda Mai, others, men and women, because they got an overflow of spirituality, because they got the Shaktipata, because they got the grace, sometimes they became weird. They became imbalanced. They became slightly crazy. People around them look at them and shook their heads and they said, my God, it's like, what's happening? You know, this man or this woman is like damaged goods. It's like they were not managing to behave normally. You could say, you know, why can't you just hide it to everybody? and go in the forest and howl like a wolf when you are alone and nobody sees you, and then come back and pretend to be a normal citizen. These people couldn't even pretend anymore to be normal citizens. They were really weird. Sometimes they were considered crazy. Because the spiritual influence which had come into them was devouring them from inside. It was like a burning fire inside. And they were not 100% baked. They were, you know, everybody is impatient. Everybody says, give it to me. When do you give it to me? Give it to me now. Yeah, no, don't worry. I'm ready. And so on. Everybody is a bit infatuated on this. And all of us are being challenged. Even when you think you are prepared. And sometimes, you know, this spiritual influence is turning your world upside down and inside out. It's like, what am I doing in this body? There have been sadhus in India, not one. Thousands of them. There have been sadhus in India when they reached Samadhi. They spent another one, two, three days and then they went into the Ganges and drowned themselves. They drowned. They committed suicide. 
there was a disciple of Gurdjieff who reached a state of full state of samadhi and then he remained like this. And he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he didn't speak. He just remained like this. And after 10 days or so, he passed away. And the only person who could understand what was happening to him was Gurdjieff himself. And everybody thought it was a tragedy. This man was a great writer. No, René, René Domal, a French intellectual and writer, he just experienced experimental death due to a Gurdjieff method in which he reached the overflow in him. Then it was over. He couldn't live anymore. He just remained like that and he went. He went into paradise, but he went. That's why the spiritual influence is like a fire, like a water. And yoga is baking your pot. Yoga is baking your jar. That's why, not only yoga, you're going to say only yoga. No, Qigong, Taoist practices, Zen meditation, dervish whirling dance, Christian prayer, whatever your lineage of practice is, but those practices are put there for a purpose because we had generations of people who practiced before us and they knew. Believe me, it is possible to induce states of enlightenment much earlier. I have a few pupils in the school here who some of you know that they already experienced some states of samadhi. And if you will ask them, you will see that it is not entirely comfortable. It's not all just roses and jingle bells. It's a big challenge which comes with a huge, inimaginable. They can't even speak about it. It's too much for the outsiders to understand. But also that it came after a number of years of practice. It could, it, could I have done it in half of that time? I could. I could have taught them methods by which it would have come faster. I can teach any one of you such methods but it will destroy you. It's like putting water in a jar that is not baked yet. And it simply destroys it. That's why the spiritual practice is done at a certain pace. It's done in a certain way. And meanwhile, I'm watching you if you are baking your pot. And as soon as your pot is reasonably baked, then things can go further and further and further. This is a very important teaching from the sage that was Geranda. And this is where I'm going to stop here. We stop at the shloka number 8, where as an unbaken earth pot immersed into water, the body quickly decays in this world. That is why one must bake it hard in the fire of this yoga to strengthen and purify it. That's a fundamental metaphor and it's a fundamental idea that you should keep about Hatha Yoga, and all those, because they have a very, very profound meaning in preparing the human being for the overflow of grace and for coping with reality in another way. Let us stop now here with this uh, beautiful beginning of one of the four most venerated texts in the Hatha Yoga Kundalini Yoga tradition, With this we will stop. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining tonight. And in the next weeks I will continue with the text of Giranda Samhita. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com 
or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.